0: Hi Charlie, how are you doing?
1: Hi Gilbert, I'm good, thank you, how are you?
0: Not bad, thanks. So, um, I'm Gilbert Ramsey, I'm the Postgraduate Research and Development Officer um, here at Dundee.
1: And I'm Charlie Clebo Rogers, and I'm the Researcher and Academic Development Officer, also based in OPD at Dundee.
0: And this is the first uh, ever episode of Discovering Research, uh, the Dundee Research Development podcast and so um, Charlie and I are just going to be um, talking a little bit about uh, what we hope to do with this podcast Um, and then we're going to move on to the interview that I did with uh, Jonathan Brown um, of the School of Education who is at the moment it's fair to say Dundee's leading podcaster with his Dundee Book Club podcast and I'll probably talk a little bit about the learning experience it was certainly for me uh doing this uh interview and doing this uh, podcast for the first time so anyway yeah um so charlie uh, any thoughts on like how you feel about going forward with this podcast and you know what you hope to do with it
1: i well yeah i'm i'm super excited so this came well obviously gilbert yourself and i just started uh, before the summer um in our roles in OPD and um, we were quite excited by the prospect of engaging researchers and academics and PGRs in a very different way. And obviously we were both very enthusiastic about podcasting, and podcasting and what kind of opportunities that offer does to engage with our representative audiences and uh, respective audiences. And I just think um, this, this opens so many doors for us to really bind the research um, environment together at the University of Dundee, you know, connecting PGRs with early career researchers with the academics, with the researchers the principal investigators that obviously they want to potentially one day become um, and I think that's where you and I come in is, is that kind of anchor of both of those realms, you know we're kind of the, the middlemen between um, the research researchers and the researcher environment, so yeah, there's loads of arms and legs are going to come off this podcast hopefully but showcasing research is obviously one of them and research and development journeys is another. Right
0: and I mean I think it's with one of the fun things just is the way that we have each of us these two different distinct but really ultimately connected um, audiences so uh, I represent um, the development interests of postgraduate researchers so these are people that are looking to become researchers, um, fully fledged professional researchers in due course, um, whether that's within universities, whether within a university itself, or whether it's in some other avenue of research. And Charlie, of course, you're representing people that are already, you know, professional researchers, whether they're postdocs, or whether they're uh, academic teaching staff. And so we really like the idea of maybe talking to people who are seasoned researchers who are doing some fascinating research work. And talking a little bit about how they got where they were going maybe and what their journey was like and maybe getting some insights um, for people that are a bit earlier on in, in, in their careers and you know, who might be looking to one day um, uh, be where kind of some of the more senior researchers we have are at. So I think that's what we're hopefully going to be achieving in, in this podcast and in the episodes to come. Um, and so in this first episode, you're going to hear me uh, talking to Jonathan Brown, um, who is a, a researcher um, within the School of Education. Um, and it was a really interesting conversation that we had. Um, he, I don't want to preempt the conversation, but he uh, came into research from having you know, an interesting previous career. And so we talked a bit about what it was like. Um, you know, coming into research by a slightly less conventional route, some of the challenges he overcame. He says some really interesting things, um, some really positive, I think, quite powerful things about um, you know how to overcome sometimes things like negative thoughts, um, some of the um, sort of mental challenges that I think every researcher faces at some point. Um, the other thing about this that's maybe useful to say is when we decided to do this podcast the first person we of course approached about it was jonathan right because we knew that in yeah. dundee he already runs the wonderful podcast the dundee book club podcast and we thought if anybody in the university knew how to uh, run a podcast knew how to make a podcast he'd have the answers and he was incredibly helpful wasn't he charlie Oh,
1: well, massively and, and massively enthusiastic as well about other people starting podcasts um you know because there's always that 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 apprehension when you want to start a project and there's someone else doing something that's even vaguely similar, they might get slightly territorial but that wasn't the case with Jonathan, he Not was at all. so so supportive and so uber, uber excited for us starting up a podcast and then agreeing to be our first uh, podcast uh, victim
0: um, <laughs> Indeed, and so actually that was Jonathan's idea that basically rather than him just telling us how to do it all, we would basically do an interview with him talk to him, get a first episode of the podcast essentially recorded and then he would take us through the process of like how to edit it and how to create the episode and so on. And so we would learn how to do it by doing it and you know at the end of the process we would have our first episode and so that's pretty much what's happened. Um, Unfortunately um, Charlie wasn't able to actually make that particular conversation so What you're going to hear is just me and Jonathan and definitely there are some things that probably are um, fairly important learning points for me next time. Um, Obviously I'm working at home as um, probably most of the people, not quite everyone necessarily, but most of the people listening to the podcast will be. Um, I have, um, full disclosure, a slightly older than one year old uh, son and you can definitely hear him at certain places in the recording. Um, there are one or two other things that are maybe not as professional as, let's put it this way, episode two is going to be, but we think that the content absolutely is there. Jonathan said some really interesting things, and we're really excited about um, giving you the opportunity to hear them in this episode.
1: Yeah, no,
0: that's great. I look forward to hearing that. So. Uh, I guess, welcome to the first ever episode of the Dundee Research Development Podcast. And so it's really exciting to have um, Dundee's uh, preeminent podcaster, uh, Jonathan <laughs> Brown, on as our first ever guest. Um, and um, yeah, and so um, this is actually, I mean, apart from obviously the, the podcast, which we're going to be talking about a bit more, I hope, in due course. Um, this is going to be hopefully a really interesting conversation from a research and development point of view, because actually your pathway into research, Jonathan, from what I understand, has maybe not been quite as straightforward as some people's, and so actually there's a real journey that we can you know hopefully talk about, and maybe some of you know the the, the experiences you've had coming into research, um, you've maybe got a, a kind of more interesting perspective on than. Than, than people who've maybe just kind of gone through the straightforward route of you know going straight from an undergraduate degree to a master's degree to a phd or whatever so actually you really came in from a a completely different career and actually you know you you'd um you already had quite a well-developed career before you kind of went into the the higher education sector do you want to talk about that just a little bit yeah i mean i
2: studied at, at the university of dundee for my undergrad i did a philosophy and english lit um degree which i loved Um, I finished my degree, and I was actually offered a place, a PhD um, course, through the Visual Research Centre, which is based within the the DCA. But actually, I got married between my third and fourth year at university um, to my wife, who I'm still married to. actually married 18 years just on Saturday there, and uh, just couldn't secure the funding, and it wasn't really financially viable at that time. And I'd I'd ended up moving into a, a career in primary education, um, I did my, my my postgrad primary certificate also with the University of Dundee, so I'm a Dundee boy, and worked in uh, primary education for I think about 14, 14 years. Um, worked in lots of different roles. So I was a, a acting head teacher, a staff tutor, which is like a development officer um, uh, for for teachers. I was a principal teacher, a deputy head teacher for quite a long time, and then uh, my final year in. Um, sort of primary education i worked as a development officer for angus council for stem subjects for science and stem i did that for a year but um at the time when i was a deputy head teacher i was i was sort of humming and hanging the next logical step would be to become a head teacher i just wasn't sure if that was the right route for me you know i I tended to be a lot more interested in in big ideas and engaging in ideas and, and and actually school was very much you know it was by that, I had teacher problems with running in an organization, and I, and I just wasn't sure if that was for, for me. And I actually had done a diploma in coaching based around transactional analysis. And it was through this I was able just to explore actually what might be a better fit. And a friend of mine worked at the university and started speaking to me about it. And I, I felt myself moving back towards that love of ideas and of learning and, and of that kind of environment. So, moved back to the university. Um, of, of Dundee and you know my first day I actually went into the library and found the table I used to study at in the in the library and it was a lovely kind of circular moment of like coming back to um, I, those lovely memories of my fourth year of, of studying in the library and of being there and of immersing myself in those ideas so yeah so that's me back at the university now I'm on a teaching and scholarship contract currently um, teaching in the, in the school of education but um, as you've said, I'm, I'm just beginning my own journey now back into research and uh,
0: and, and that kind of stuff. It's um, often a really kind of scary moment, isn't it? When you're quite well into a career and you know that you could make it to the next step. And, and that's always the question they ask you, isn't it? Is do you want to be your, your current boss? And if you can't say yes, then then maybe you're not quite in the right area. But, you know, it's a, it's a real moment isn't it when you have to to take the plunge and um I mean that's a lovely image you gave of just kind of coming right back full circle in this sense of in a way coming home to something um, but it sounds like you were quite intellectually questing all the way through primary education so you were talking about the coaching um that you, you were studying you were also talking about the work you were doing on stem and of course you came from a, a philosophy degree so you'd always really had that kind of going through right the kind of a Maybe yeah. sort of a set of quite broad social horizons. Have you found coming back into higher education, has that been kind of a satisfying experience intellectually? Have you been finding really kind of what you were looking for?
2: Yes, I mean, do you know I think the biggest thing is um, it's, it's it's like it's like the, the courage to move into the unknown, right? So where is the information? The information is in that space that is currently unknown, right? So that's where you have to move. That's where you have to move into. But moving into that space that is unknown, you don't have a map for that, right? It's it's not some place you've been before. You can't navigate it well. So you move out of a domain of certainty that's well mapped, that you are skilled, and, and there's a level of fluency and confidence in, but to extend your sort of boundaries, you have to move into this new space. So, in, interestingly, in education, we spend a lot of time working with children about developing a sort of shared language to describe the experience of learning. Because in one learning, in one one dimension, learning is, is a is a cognitive um, undertaking, right? Right. So, you're teaching children your information, you're teaching them thinking skills, but there's this whole effective domain in in learning. So how do I feel about not knowing? What are the stories I tell myself about not knowing? Um, How do I manage with the uncertainty of not not knowing? What's the meaning I give to the uncertainty of not knowing? So actually coming and moving back to the university, it was a real opportunity to sort of live out some of those lessons that we teach the children in schools in terms of was it satisfying it was incredibly satisfying and terrifying you know like one of the things that I noticed straight away coming to the university was just the rigor of the conversation Mm. you know so even in the staff room we're sitting talking and I'd be talking about some ideas I had and people would follow up with oh that's interesting what's that based on and I would think "Uh, I don't know my opinion
0: (laughs) yeah I mean conversations don't usually have references do they (laughs)
2: you know but it did make me just sort of more aware again of of um yeah just that rigor in my own thinking and actually that part of part of the work of the university is a critical approach to thinking so it's about approaching ideas again in a more robust and critical way and not just okay this is the thing i have to implement in my school so the thought is about how do we implement it but there's that additional dynamic of being critical about the thing that you're going to be implementing
1: or whether
0: or not you should. Absolutely. So um, we've been talking about um, the experience of getting back into a research environment and some of the conversations that come up in that, but what we haven't actually talked about is your actual research at the moment. And I was wondering if you would like to just discuss a little bit kind of what you're you're specifically working on at the moment.
2: Yeah, great. Well, that's really exciting, thanks. Um, So basically this came from um, a a challenge I was facing in practice. So in in practice in schools, a large um, or a key agenda, I suppose, within Scottish education at the moment is closing the poverty-related attainment gap. And that's essentially looking at the difference in educational outcomes and attainment from those from the most and then the least deprived families. So at the time when I was in practice, I was um, managing early level. So for Scottish schools, that looks like our nursery, so um, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, um, five year olds and then primary one, five year olds, six year olds. So early level kind of covers you know three to six, six and a half. So this is the area I was I was helping like manage, and at that time I was working with families, and you know you were seeing children coming in from from families where I worked with older the siblings, and I kind of had the sense that um, you know these children were were already on a path, you know even at that young stage, and and actually what the research shows. Is that children can come into our centers at three and they can be half their life already so they can be up to 18 uh, months behind peers even at that stage at three and then what we see is that over time that gap broadens it doesn't narrow so what can we what can we do about this so i was really then interested at looking at what what strategies have been identified in research that we can put in place that can make a difference and one of the one of the key things that came across was the idea of the home learning environment. Now, the whole learning environment can just be conceptualized as the sort of daily activities and choices and interactions that an adult would enact with a child to support learning. And that could be as simple as talking about colors or talking about left and right or bigger and smaller. It doesn't have to be sort of formal sitting down and doing academic learning, right? It's the, it's the richness of the educational interactions that are available. Now what's interesting is the research points to this home learning environment as being a more positive contributing factor to educational outcomes than the income level of the parent, the current job of the parent, whether the parent is in a, you know different types of relationships. So it's a really important it seemed to me to be a very important, powerful factor to tap into. But when you think about the home learning environment, actually, as a parent myself, enacting behaviors it's not, as, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, here's a really good thing for you to do with your son today, um, Gilbert, go and do it. But actually, homes are complicated places where there's multiple competing demands, and, and you know, your parents are trying to manage lots of different things. So this led me down the route of looking at decision-making and, and behaviour change. So what does the literature tell us around, actually, how we go about enacting good behaviours? And interestingly, I found a, a whole a kind of body of research around this was a guy called daniel Kahneman. i don't know if you're aware of him he talks about thinking fast and thinking slow is a famous
0: book of his yeah sure Kahneman and Tversky, like i mean all that amazing kind of insight into um kind of what drives people's decisions right and you know um prospect theory and am i I on the right kind of lines
2: yeah absolutely so richard thaler um um, and daniel Kahneman, they're all in that in that same cast sunstein they're all that same kind of group and thaler um did a bit of research and essentially what he was looking at was the standard eco- economic model that was used for sort of per, for, for predicting right and in the standard economic model the agent the individual that, that was being used was like a Mr. Spock like character he called it and he called it an econ not a human being because in the standard economic right. model all you had to do was give this individual the optimum information and they would make the optimum choice right so but what he said was this didn't take into account the messy inner workings of actual decision making that's not actually how people make decisions so what but what happens is it produces a a bias and the bias is a sort of
0: inform and persuade approach so all i need to do to get you to stop smoking is give you the best information about why you shouldn't smoke which is why no one smokes right
2: exactly (laughs) right which is what happens um Rather than paying attention to how do people actually make decisions and, and then change their behaviour, so I started I started to try and pull these two fields together. So looking at we, we know that the positive behaviour, the positive home learning environment, ha- has a powerful impact on our on our families and our young people. And there's something about paying attention to how people um, actually make decisions and, and change their behaviours. So my research looked at how can we go about using this information, right? To, to better support people to create these enriching home learning environments. Now, essentially, the research that I, um, the, the, the study that, that really was a turning point for me was one by a guy called Rager and uh, Rager and Nash. I can put the link in the show notes if you like. that uh, They were asked to work with citizens within their, it was a state in America, I can't remember the state just now, and they were asked to work with citizens to bring the average um, fat consumption to within the recommended daily allowance. Now, what they looked at was when they were looking at nutrition, the field of nutrition was a very crowded space, okay? So as a, as a new dad, uh, Gilbert, you'll know, you're constantly getting all this different information about, should you do this or should you not do this? Is this good or is it not good? What's the, what's the latest advice, right? Now, what that means is to go into that domain, to go into that space and then navigate it, requires significant cognitive effort,
0: right? Absolutely, tell me about it, you know, and then there's and then there's what the kid will actually eat.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So there's just, it's, there's layers here, okay? So what they noticed was um, with food pyramids and with healthy plates and with all these diet trends, there was so much information there that actually it was producing uh, paralysis for individuals, right? In fact, we know that the more options people are given, the harder it is for them to make a decision but interestingly also the less satisfied they will be with their choice so there's two interesting dynamics there so what they um what they decided instead they could do was they were going to try this approach where they essentially um simplified the decision-making environment because what they what they were noticing was that when, when you um behavior change interventions were most successful when you're able to reduce the cognitive effort required to enact the desired behavior so if you're thinking, I want to cook something healthy for tea, and you have to go online and wade through all these different websites and then find a recipe and then think about the ingredients, there's so many steps you're just like, you know what, too much effort, I'm not doing it. So what they did was they tried something that they called scripting the critical move. And basically this was saying, don't do that, do this. Right. So just one uh, proactive behavior. And that came about when they realized that for the average citizen, if they were to change from full fat milk to skimmed milk, that single purchasing decision would move the average fat consumption to within the recommended daily allowance. So they were able to simplify the decision-making environment right, by scripting the critical move. By Instead of saying, okay, you need a healthy plate, you need to navigate this, carbohydrates are good, we don't need to worry about eggs, we're going to eat butter, don't worry about white carbs, right? They were able to script the critical move and just say, just buy skimmed milk. Now, I don't know if you remember seeing the Got Milk adverts from about 10 years ago when all the celebrities had milk moustaches. Absolutely. Well, that was part of that campaign, right? So the idea then was we can reduce the cognitive effort to enact the desired behaviour by scripting the critical move. So reading this study, I thought, all right, okay, so what would that look like in the home for families? Because actually the nutritional context and the educational context are similar in that they're both very crowded. So if you're a parent and you're thinking, I want to do something to, to sort of benefit my child's development, to support their learning, what can I do? Well, in the same way that you would get lost trying to decide whether or not you should eat carbohydrate or whether you should be vegan, you can get lost in educational parenting spaces, right? And again, there's um, high cognitive resource required to go into that space and move something out of value, right? So what would it look like to script the critical move in the whole learning environment? So again, I was mulling this over and mulling this over and I thought well I wonder if there was a way that I could get to parents just one play-based activity each day that would be developmentally appropriate for their child so what would it be like if each day your phone pinged and just said to you today speak about bigger and smaller that's it that's all you have to do today and then the next day it would ping up and say today speak about yours and mine right and then the next day I might say, today, practice rolling an object, right? So you're, you're simplifying the decision-making environment, reducing the cognitive load required to enact the desired behavior, and then at the same time what you're doing is you're building that domain of competence slowly over time. So is a model that you're looking at the difference between frequency and intensity, right? right? So it's just little, little episodes every day. It's like brushing your teeth. Right? It every totally. day you brush your teeth and it adds up to something important. If you were to save up all those teeth brushing episodes all week and only brush your teeth for an hour and a half on a Saturday, that wouldn't work. <laughs> right? <laughs> your breath would be minging it wouldn't be good for you. I'm
0: sure and I've equally, known people who seem to think that.
2: <laughs> right? Yeah. And equally, if you, were missed, if you were to miss one of those episodes, one of those Saturdays, it'd have real pretty serious consequences. But actually, if you brush your teeth after every meal, you could miss one of those incidents throughout the day, and it wouldn't matter. So there's something about, you know, creating that um, um, sort of low, there's not a huge consequence if you miss one, but over time it compounds to something quite big. So you're, you know, if you think, I was thinking if a parent engaged with this app even for two weeks, that would be 14 new ways of supporting their child's learning and development that they would require. So this was essentially where I got to. Um, this was all sort of conceptual work I was doing I left, left education and basically, my wife my wife and I have both been primary school teachers. We've both got kids. From doing the research, I was convinced that it would work. And both of us felt like... Both of us had worked with families who we felt could have benefited this. As parents, we felt we could have benefited with this. So ultimately, felt like this was maybe a contribution to make. So I, I sort of went out, managed to secure some funding, took out, a bit, took out a bit of a loan, worked with a local games company and got them to build an app. My wife and I then... Um, did research and developed a play-based curriculum to sit within the app. And then uh, I've actually just finished my first proof of concept. This is the first bit of research I've done at the university, which was a proof of concept study based on the app as a behavior change intervention to support home home learning. Um, So that's been really really interesting because there's a couple of things. One is just the research side and education. On one level, I feel fairly confident about education. The research side is totally new. So it's strange because on one level I feel like I know a lot about this thing, so I feel quite confident and competent, and yet at the same time I feel like I know very little about research, so I can feel very unskilled. And then running across that though both of those is this, this sort of almost acting in quite an entrepreneurial way i'm having to secure funding i'm having to access support in terms of getting my gdpr data managed correctly i'm working with schools to try and get people to make use of the app to try and recoup some of the funds i you know i outlaid so it's been there's been in terms of learning i feel there's just been this massive
0: bit of learning but that's the research that i'm currently uh, currently working on that's awesome and in some ways it's exactly what you know research development is all about when I mean, we're constantly Telling researchers to be you know, more engaged, more entrepreneurial, to sort of get out there and secure funding, and you know, you had before you even came into the kind of higher education research space, you know, you already had a background in practice, you had the app, you know, you'd, you'd done the entrepreneurial side, and as you're saying, then it was just kind of actually kind of getting into the research and kind of adding the footnotes and adding the methodology and adding the the kind of the studies to really. Validate something that you were already, you know, pretty sure worked, right? Mm. Um, yeah, and that must be—I mean, that's, that must be exciting. It must be it. sometimes. Sometimes I imagine a slightly frustrating experience.
2: Yeah, you know what's been great is—I suppose I want to say this. You know, make sure I say this is that my colleagues at the university have been amazing. They've been absolutely incredible. Um, Duncan Mercia, I can never pronounce his surname right, sorry Duncan, Alex Barabal, you know, they've just been absolutely incredible, spending time with me and developing my confidence, helping me feel like I have something to say, walking me through the process, you know, that's been incredible. But you're right, it has been frustrating, it's been frustrating on on a strange number of levels, you know. Um, It's been frustrating dealing with um, feeling like I know about something and then, but lacking in a skill in another domain and watching that impact you know so it's slower it's a lot slower than I would have liked there's something strange about being an entre- acting in an entrepreneurial way because you make something um that you think will add value and that you think will be useful and then it's strange because sometimes having a, a then a, I guess it's a product that you're selling is almost I don't know if this is my internalized experience of it because I don't like doing sales, but it's almost like that then becomes somehow a dirty thing, mm-hmm. you know, like less valuable because it's in, it's a product. Um, so it's it is strange. It's been a very it's been a very it's one of those things I think I could almost write about the experience of doing it because there's been so much learning just even just in managing myself through the process, you know, of not give, even just of mm-hmm. not giving up, of of
0: continuing. Um, to to keep pushing through you know and of course I mean research does often feel like that I think for everybody everybody has a moment where you're in the tunnel you can't necessarily see the end of the tunnel and I mean I was wondering actually were there have you had moments where you weren't sure that you were going to stay the course um and what did you do to get you through so yeah absolutely I mean there's times where I go between feeling um brave and
2: proud of myself for trying and then for feeling foolish like I've wasted money time resources that it's not a good idea um I, and that's that's really that's really hard because it's more than just it's more than just anytime you put yourself out there you're aware that it's like it's public you, you know so I suppose how do I get through that then is there's, there's a couple of couple of ones. I listened to a great podcast, and, and the, the guy that was being inter, in, interviewed was quite a successful man. I forget what he did, and he, he was one of those guys that was always doing new projects. And the interviewer had said to him, "You know, you're not just happy to stop, basically. We don't just want to be on a beach type thing. You know, what do you get out of doing this? You don't need any more money." And the guy had said, "You know, I'm not. I don't do things for for money or for fame. I do it because of the personal growth I get out of it. I do it because I get to become." the kind of person who, I don't know, can start a business, the kind of person who makes a contribution, the kind of person who, and I think for me, what I fall back onto when I feel embarrassed that maybe it's not working, or I have a meeting with someone and they think it's a dumb idea, right, is throughout this, I'm I'm learning to become the kind of person who takes an idea and can bring it into reality, who tries to make a difference who can take feedback on and move forward from it, who can endure when things are hard. And there's, a, there's an old Jungian archetype, um, Carl Jung, and he he talked about how the fool precedes the savior. And the idea was that we have to we have to
0: be prepared to be foolish, right? Yeah. Before we move
2: through foolishness into yeah. levels of competency. You know, so I often think about if I decided I was going to get into adult gymnastics, right? I'm only going to look like a graceful gymnast doing all these lovely twists and flips. After I look like a pure lumbering fool for, you know. And I think it's just about the, leaning back into fundamentally this personal growth happening for me, and that's great. And that uh, I'm comfortable with being foolish if it's on the road to, you know, developing skills. But yeah, it's really I have found it a lot, lot harder emotionally
0: than, I, than yeah. cognitively I think Yeah, There's a wonderful, I'm also reminded of a, a saying by Blake, um, I'm sure I'm going to misquote it but I think it's the fool if he were to persist in his foolishness would become wise Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if this is a fair comparison I know a little bit more about research than I do about entrepreneurship but yeah. I do have the feeling that in entrepreneurship there is a bit of a, a culture of failure, there is an expectation that you'll try things out and they won't always work out Sometimes I feel that in academia, that culture is kind of lacking, that there is a real terror of showing people work that's less than finished, of um, kind of looking like you don't know absolutely everything about a, a particular subject. Mm. Is that something that you've encountered, that you've had to grapple with? Um, or perhaps um, perhaps that's an unfair stereotype about what academic environments are like. Yeah,
2: I don't know. I don't think, I, I, I don't feel like I'm, so here's a good quote for you, right? My next door neighbor is a wonderful guy. Sasha, his name is. And um, he would often say to me, you know, you are the average of the five people you spend most time with, right? Which I think is a wonderful idea. I was thinking about this one day on the walk and I thought, you know what? I'm also the, the average of the five thoughts I think most often. So what, what, what where's my thinking at? So am I thinking to myself, Jonathan, you're rubbish at this, right? Is that one of my five most common thoughts? Or I'm able, able to think, Joe, Jonathan, you can't do this yet, but there's, a, you know, you're learning, okay? And so I think for me, I'm I'm constantly aware of my shortcomings in that sense. even like coming to the university, I think, man, you know what? I'm 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 studying to, to do to get my masters done, but I don't have that. I'm not from an academic background. I've just actually heard, Gilbert, that I've got my first ever piece of writing that's going to get published.
0: Congratulations.
2: So that, that felt amazing. You know, but I'm very aware of that. But I think from working in primary schools, you know, we speak to the children so often about the process of learning, of being a learner. And I think for me actually starting the podcast was an effort to, to not allow myself to develop the habit of being scared to share. Yeah. So um, I set myself a goal in my first year at the university that I was going to try and uh, write something and submit it to a journal. Even if it wasn't accepted, I thought I need to establish the habit now that I read, that I write, and I put stuff out there. And I can't, I, I'm, I wasn't going to allow myself to go overly precious, basically. So I started the podcast as a way of having conversations with people that stretched my thinking that meant I was just having to you know, get content recorded and put it out there. And it was almost like a deliberate desensitizing of commentary about me and my ideas and stuff. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that's important. You know, I think that is a, a
0: key skill because if you want to share stuff, we just need to be able to, to kind of be there and, and share, you know? You know. It's amazing, I always think, submitting a paper, certainly the first few times, just the disparity between, you know, how absolutely flat out terrifying it is. And let's face it, what the real likely consequences can be. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe your paper gets rejected. You can go back, you can uh, rewrite it, you can reanalyse the data if necessary. You can probably submit it to another journal maybe you just have to put it down to experience and write another paper, but it's very unlikely that it's going to be some sort of career-ending event.
2: Well, you know, what's interesting, Gilbert, is um, I, I read an interesting thing. I was talking about the word stress. So within some bodies of psychology, they would talk about there being just a small number of authentic emotions, almost like trees. And then those trees have branches with different, you know, offshoots, they're different emotions, right? So... Um, Within that, they would say that stress isn't an authentic emotion, right? But rather, it's a, it's a variant of scared. Yeah. So the point being was, when we feel stressed, sometimes a useful strategy can, can be to say, to name the authentic emotion and say, what is it that I'm scared of? And how could I feel safe, right? So the reason I'm saying that is, um, one of the things I've noticed in my wee journey, and do you know what? see what there's loads of people that are way better at this than me so it's tough to be on your podcast but i'm right at the start but one of the things on my wee journey that i've noticed is i have to pay attention to my thought life i have to pay attention to the meaning i'm giving to things so for example if it's just a, a, an article i'm submitting to a journal for the first time that's not overly scary but if it's my worth as an individual or an academic then that is quite scary so I think paying attention to our thinking, to how we name things, right? So there's something called explanatory style. So so often the meaning that we give to experiences becomes our experience. So say you're stuck in traffic and it's taking you longer than you would like to get home. If you start saying to yourself, man, this is a nightmare, right? Then the meaning we give to that experience often becomes that experience, okay? Um, and in fact, I'm reading a fantastic book at the moment by a guy called Jonathan Hyatt. I think that's how you pronounce his name, H-A-H. I-D-T.
0: I've he's never right known to, how to pronounce that name. I've re- read the odd thing he's written, but I think I've heard people say different things. But anyway, I'm sure the yeah, more important thing is what he actually says.
2: But he talks about, um, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Coddling of the American Mind, which is wonderful. And he talks about in, in cognitive behavioural therapy, you know, just the importance of paying attention to our thinking. Um, and, and, he, and he looks at across all these ancient um, manuscripts, so ancient or religious or spiritual texts, this idea of being mindful of the label we give to our experiences. And I think, you know, that kind of practical wisdom uh, is important in these sort of academic or entrepreneurial um, pursuits. And I think for me that's something i have always have cared about. You know, maybe it's coming from practice, coming from schools, is, you know, how does this practically work? How do we make this work? And one of the ways we make it work is paying attention to the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the things that we're undertaking.
0: But of course practical wisdom is this really ancient idea but I think it's a wonderful term to sum up in a way your own journey because and the thing that's the, the synergy that's so fascinating here is that of course you are an educationalist by background by profession you know with you've got this whole long career in, in 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 helping you know in teaching children in you know helping children learn and then of course you are yourself going on that journey now You know, you're going through the experience of learning how to do something quite challenging and of course the ultimate object is itself another thing, another form of learning. You're going to be you know, helping parents to better learn how to create an educational learning environment for their children. There's just so many layers here. And as I understand, there's kind of a culmination to all this. You were talking about publishing your first research paper, but there's also this book that you're working on. Am I right?
2: Yeah. So that's, do you know, that, that that was something that I hadn't realized could, could be something I pulled into my university work. So basically, um, how old am I now? I am 38. I think about eight years ago, I developed an anxiety disorder. Um, And it was just something that happened in my life that I then kind of worried over. And for whatever reason, for me, it produced a, a very anxious response. But I basically became ashamed of my, ashamed of that anxiety. And I think partially from not sort of seeking help, it developed into full-blown anxiety disorder. So I was having panic attacks and, you know, it was, it was awful. It was really bad. And, um, you know, so there was working through that, this process of actually moving towards wellness and well-being, And, you know, eventually I I, I went to see it and, um, and, and sought help and was able to sort of work through a lot of that thinking that had, um, led to this kind of um, anxious state that I was in, and which is why I'm interested in things like coaching and cognitive behavioural therapy, because it's very much a lived experience for me. Equally, I'm very interested in the shame that we can put around uh, mental ill health that we wouldn't give to other parts of our body. You know, if I, I often said if I'd pulled my hamstring, you know, I wouldn't mind walking around with, a, with a, a crutch for a couple of days and I wouldn't be embarrassed if people came in the office and found me stretching my hamstring. But if someone came in and found me meditating, or or, or being mindful, or even just saying, "Man, I'm feeling a bit anxious today," there's something different there. Anyway, nice in this in this journey um, towards sort of well-being, I suppose mental well-being or developing physical mental fitness, mental mental well-being, I read a, a, an old book called "As a Man Thinketh" by James Allen, mm-hmm. which to me is like it's almost like. Um, you know, an original cognitive behavioural therapy text. It's It's got some religious language in it, which I think is just a sort of, you know, of the time, you know. It's a little bit floral at points. But I felt like, you know, this book that was maybe 80 pages, it was so profound, and I would read maybe three or four lines, and I would have to stop and think about those three or four lines that were so profound for me. And it was really just about the power that our thinking has on us. You know, like, um, as a man thinketh, is from the um, from the proverb, actually. You know, as a man thinketh in his heart, so it is. You know, we have that again in, in Shakespeare. Nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So, and Buddha has a similar quote, and then the um, um, Mao Ma- Zedong has a similar quote. So we see this idea across different um, different spiritual texts and within ancient wisdom and now within cognitive behavior therapy. And I read this book, and I just got so much out of it. It became like a handbook for me, and it was one of those books I would always gift people. You know, if you were like what book would you give me? I would give them this book. But I was equally aware that, you know, I had an English literature and a philosophy background. I enjoyed texts that were maybe a little bit flowery at, at, at points and maybe a little bit tricky to first access. And I thought, man, it'd be wonderful to rework this book. Okay, and then also thinking about the research I'd done about um, the sort of how we actually make decisions and how we actually make behaviour change. And I thought, this book needs to be Reformatted. So what we have is a, a, the idea, a, one idea, right, and then specific practical things you could go and do on that to implement it, right. So there's something called um, symptomatic relief, right, and we can mis- we can mistake symptomatic relief for therapy, right, for the work that needs to be done to get better. So let's say for example, Gilbert, you've got lower back pain, and it's been really bothering you for months now. And you go and see a physical therapist and they say, you know what look, the problem is, Gilbert, is because you've been sitting for so long, your hamstrings and your glutes are really tight and they're pulling on your lower back. So what you need to do is you need to stretch out your glutes and your hamstrings. Now, you might go, oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad I know what that is. What a relief. I was worried it was something more sinister. That's all it is. That's wonderful. Now, that's symptomatic relief. You're getting relief because you now understand what the problem is. But that's not the same thing as doing the stretches to loosen off your hamstrings. So when we're learning about, especially for me, because I had this lived experience of of sort of improving my mental well-being, when we're learning about these things, we can hear things like you're the average of the five thoughts that you think most often, and you can think, oh, that makes so sense, that's so helpful, but that's not the same as doing the stretches to loosen your hamstrings. So as I was reading this James Allen book and with my education background and with the research I've been doing about behaviour change, I thought, how can we work this text to make the resources And the ideas lead to a concrete change in someone's life. So they're not just talking about, hey, Gilbert, here's this great quote I read. But they're able to say, I did these things, and now I am noticing I'm significantly less dot, 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 significantly more dot, dot, dot. So basically, I I took three passes at the book where I rewrote it three times. And my intention was to try and both retain the sort of distilled element of the wisdom of the book because one of its benefits is he says a lot in a couple of sentences, right? So I was trying not to make, not to make it longer, but just to try and get rid of words that might be barriers. So, like for example, there's a lot of sort of this is righteous and this is wrong and this is and I thought man, those are, there's quite a bit of judgment maybe in there and there's some sort of maybe slightly more flowery language. So I did that three different times and it was just to try and make sure I'd done enough. And then the, the essay is written in almost four, the book's written in almost four continuous essays. So the next thing was, I broke it down into 38 separate ideas. And then for each idea, I then looked at what research do we have currently within CBT or within different texts that I've been reading that I could That's sort it. of like pull a case study out. So you read this sort of like lovely bit of, I, I mean it's not ancient wisdom, right? James Allen wasn't writing that long ago, but this lovely bit of literature, this lovely bit of philosophy, right? And then it's teased out a little bit more with a modern study, and then I have questions to reflect on and actions to do. So it so that it would turn into almost like a mental well being, you know, workbook. That'd be the idea, it'd be the kind of book you would take with you when you went for a coffee, you'd write something, you'd read it, you'd reflect on it. So I had just been working on this as a personal project just because I'd found the book so valuable and I didn't really know what it was going to come to and it was only through speaking to a colleague at the university Alex Brabo who's my pure ninja helper she's wonderful um, that she said no this is something that you could do within your your you know your academic work so um, I then kind of got got a bit more busy and a bit more focused with that and I'm just in the process now is sitting with one um, publisher the thing you have to do I hadn't realized is you send it to one at a time but then you have to wait until they give you a decision before you can move on to the next one. So, again, it's that frustration of, like, waiting. So, like, I felt like I was living and breathing writing this for, for a while, sent it away to a publisher who, I've had it for two and a half months now, and I'm still waiting to eat. I mean, if it's a no, that's great. I can move on to the next one. It's just a long time. But then the other challenge is, within those two and a half months, I feel like I want to go back and rewrite huge chunks because I've read more, and, you know, so that, that's the, that's the book.
0: Yeah, that's it. I mean, publishing is a whole other story, publishing books and exactly that. Like, you're never finished, are you? You submit, Even when you submit the final draft, you're going to be thinking, oh, why didn't I do it this way or whatever. Um, but that's fascinating. And So I was just thinking that and this is going to be a, a bit of a tough question, I guess. But given your app and the direction of your research and all this fascinating stuff about, you know, kind of ways in which you can um kind of really like weed out i guess your bad thoughts think better thoughts and use that as a practice to i don't think that's a fair summary of what you were talking about but and what what you were talking about in terms of like simplifying things for people giving people simple choices so they're not overwhelmed um, when they're trying to um to to, to enact better behaviors for the benefit of people who are maybe doing PhDs right now, for the benefit of, um, of, of, of research postgraduates, that might be listening to this, if you were going to give just one piece of advice that might help somebody stay the course, that might help them get through a kind of difficult moment in their research, just one really simple thing that you can change, whether that's in terms of how you think or something you do, what might it be?
2: Goodness. So this is just advice to help
0: someone manage yeah like if you when you're in the pit when you're at that point where you feel um, yeah. like you feel seen you feel judged you feel like you're not you're not smart enough you feel like you're not dedicated enough you feel like you've not got what it takes you feel you're overwhelmed with you know yeah. uh, potential directions with literature with uh, your field work whatever it might be like is there one thing from from your own research and your own work and your own life experience that yeah. you, you you would kind of draw out?
2: I think I've got. Am I allowed to do
0: two? You're allowed to do two.
2: Okay, right. So I've got two. So one one is I think we just have to be mindful of the stories we tell, and the, and, and that and the stories. So all of us contain within us a, a story that we've created, right? And we are the characters in the stories that we tell. And we, um, and the language that we use hints at the content of this story. So, for example, if you're saying things like "this is a nightmare," right? Um, so we want to be mindful of that because those sort of basic underlying beliefs, values, and assumptions they become the lens through which we we view and interpret and see the world. Now, here's why. This, here's a, one reason why this matters. I don't know if listeners can and relate to a time when they were maybe buying a new car or, or a new kind of product like that and all of a sudden you start noticing it everywhere have you ever had an experience of like that gilbert totally yeah right so let's say let's say you're buying a, a, a white volvo right and all of a sudden you're driving around and you just notice white volvos everywhere now here's the thing the white volvos didn't just suddenly appear volvo didn't send out a memo okay everybody with white volvos get on the roads gilbert's coming right <laughs> What's interesting is seeing those white Volvos was always a possibility, right? That option was always available, but because it wasn't part of your story, your brain just filtered that out as unimportant information. So what your brain is doing for you is your brain is pulling to the front the, the details that are relevant to the story that you're telling, to your interpretive lens, Right? So let's imagine then that the part, the thing that's part of your story isn't quite Volvos, but compliments, right? Or moments of competency, or signs that people love and care for you. If that's part of your story, then the same way that all of a sudden these Volvos are coming forward, those moments will come forward. But if that's not part of the story that you're telling, then you won't pick up on those things, and instead what you'll notice is the criticisms, the failures, right? The things that could be, maybe are, or could be interpreted as slights. So I think being mindful of the story that you're telling yourself about the world and about yourself is really powerful. So let me give you another example of that. I noticed through coaching that a story I told was I get close, but I don't, I don't make it, right? So for example, you know what, I'll get this app, maybe I'll get it made, but no no, buy it, right? Or I'll go for a job and I'll get to the final round, but I won't get the job, right? You know, I'll get close, but I'll never make it. Now, what I realized was that's a really limited story because every time I came up against a challenge, I would just throw my hands up and I would say, see, that's just the story of my life. That's just me. I get close, but I never make it. Now, that is an option, right? That is, an, that is a way to interpret that, that story, that event, and to narrate it to myself. I could also just say, man, there's multiple challenges on the road to success. Life is a series of obstacles that we get to tackle and, and engage with, right? And just noticing that story and changing it was so powerful in my life. So that's one. Idea one is be mindful of the stories that you tell, right? And then then just be curious about what else could this mean, right? The second one, and this is one that I think has been a game changer for me. The second one I would call check your guess, right? And then this is one I would teach children in schools. But I think it's just a game changer. Check your guess. So let me tell you a story. Sally and John are both in primary five and they share a desk, right? And John gets up to go away and sharpen his pencil, when he comes back, he notices that his rubber is now no longer on his desk, it's on Sally's, okay? So he's noticed something factual. Factually, his rubber has moved from where it was to Sally's desk. Now, he does something fictional next. He makes a guess as to why it moved, and his guess is Sally stole it. So he's hopping mad, he's furious, he's angry, he's red in the face, he's shouting, he's getting into conflict with Sally, now he's getting into conflict with the teacher, right? But if we stand back and we look at that situation, two things happened. Something factual, something fictional. There was a notice and there was a guess, right? But which part caused John the emotional pain? The guess, right? It was the fictional bit. It was the bit that he made up, right? Now, Maybe Sally is always nicking his rubber, right? So there's an element of not being naive. But what we need to do as people is we need to check our guess. Oftentimes we notice something and then we make a guess as to why it happened. And the guess comes from your explanatory style, the script that you have for your, for your life, the belief, the values, and assumptions that you're carrying, right? So I, I got a new job when I was working for um, Angus Council as a development officer. I was walking through the, the sort of common area on my first week. And i said hello to someone and i got back but i thought it was a really cool response you know that sort of morning by the time i got to the sink to make my cup of coffee i went like i was feeling rotten you know i had a sort of churning tummy i was feeling a bit nervous i was thinking oh man they must think i'm rubbish at my job blah blah blah. blah. eventually i managed to catch myself and think that's just a guess i noticed i didn't get a equally enthusiastic good morning back and then i guess the reason was she doesn't like me now If I hadn't checked that guess, I would have been less likely to go to that colleague for advice in the future. I probably would have been quieter in meetings when that colleague was there, right? Like, there's definitely people who you're with. I mean, I have this experience, Gilbert. I'm with some people, and it's like I can think really well, and ideas come quite fluently, and I feel quite intelligent and capable, and I can be with other people, and I feel like I'm thick as two short planks, and I can't rub an idea together to save myself, right? So, um... If I hadn't noticed that unhelpful guess with that colleague, there would have been all these sort of, um, you know, roll-off consequences for my well-being, for the possibility of how the team worked together and how we worked together specifically. So I think checking your guess is a hugely important thing. So what does this thing mean? What else could it mean, right? And then be mindful of the story you tell. I think that you can borrow, borrow a lot of things down. What's interesting is um, Brene Brown, if folk have listened to her, she does a lot of great work, and one of the the key ideas that she came up to um, was using the phrase, the story that I'm telling myself is, right, so you and I are working together and I feel like you're a bit distracted and you're not quite on point, what's the story that I'm telling myself about that, it's just check your guess, right, Maybe the guess I'm doing is Gilbert doesn't like him like working with me. He thinks my contribution's weak. He thinks my idea is flawed, but he's just not got the confidence to tell me. But in actual fact, maybe Idris didn't sleep well last night and you're tired and you're just thinking about, is he going to sleep well tonight?
0: Well, actually, the truth is I genuinely didn't sleep last night. But <laughs> I am definitely not <laughs> thinking any of those things. This is fascinating. No,
2: do, do, do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. So, But those guesses if they're left unchecked, they build up and they build up and they build up and they build up and they become the space that we live within. So I think for me, the two big ideas that really helped me were be mindful of the story you tell and check your guess.
0: And it is amazing, isn't it? How often when we don't check our guesses, they become almost more real for us than the actual thing we observed. Um, So that's, I mean, that's incredibly, incredibly useful advice. And I think it's, um, I mean, yeah, it's so often the case that um, even when we're trying to do research development, when we're trying to help people um, to get through these difficult times, there's just kind of, there, there, there's a forest of advice, there's a forest of things that you could do. But I think those are really helpful things to focus on, just working on on your own stories, working on the guesses that you infer, the fictional things that you infer from the facts in front of you. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. Um, it's yeah. been like so There's loads to think about here, and um, yeah, I mean, th- this is going to be um, a wonderful episode. I hope um, to, to start out our, our podcast, um, yeah. and maybe we'll Thanks, get you Gilbert. back on when the book comes out.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, I'd love it. Hopefully that'll hopefully that'll happen. Fingers yeah. crossed.
0: Do a bit of promotion. Fantastic. Okay. Right.
2: Thanks, Gilbert.